Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. This week's program, posting September 25, 2015, is a special interview with World Policy Institute Senior Fellow Elmira Bayrosley. Her new book is From the Other Side of the World, Extraordinary Entrepreneurs, Unlikely Places, about innovation, determination, economic expansion, and social development. We'll also point out top stories in the new WPJ Food Fight Fall issue. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Yani bir kere girişimcilik zor bir iş, yani riskli bir iş ve onun için hakikaten çok istekli olman lazım. Eğer istekli değilsen hiç uğraşma. Çünkü bir sürü zor zaman geçirirsiniz. Above all, entrepreneurship is hard. It's risky, says Bulan Chelebi, who studied engineering at UC Berkeley and launched AirTies Wireless back home in Turkey to exploit and advance the so-called Internet of Things there, regionally and worldwide. You really have to be eager, he says. If you don't have enthusiasm, don't even bother and save yourself the effort. Chelebi is one of seven private sector pioneers in seven different countries who demonstrate how innovation, dedication and technology can do better than big government or big business to empower individuals, change economies and societies. In addition to Turkey, they're working in China, Russia, Mexico, Nigeria, India, and Pakistan. All are profiled in a new book, From the Other Side of the World, Extraordinary Entrepreneurs, Unlikely Places, by World Policy Institute Senior Fellow Elmira Bayrosley. We talked about it recently for this podcast. Elmira Bayrosley, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me. The personal journey that led to this book also starts in Turkey, whose dramatic underdevelopment at the time was symbolized for you by the absence of ketchup, of all things. Tell us about that and its impact on you. Sure. When I was about eight years old, uh, I went to Turkey on one of the summer vacations that my family and I would, would take. Um, my parents are from Turkey, from a small town in central Anatolia outside of the capital city. And those trips were always filled with dirt roads, um, not intermittent electricity, and the absence of telephones, which having grown up in New York City was always such a stark contrast for me, and it, it very much stood out. And so going there as an eight-year-old, I had prepared myself for what the summer would be like except for one day when my grandmother made me a plate of fries and there was no ketchup. And I didn't understand why there wasn't any ketchup. There was plenty of produce, including tomatoes in Turkey. And I asked why couldn't someone just make some ketchup? Why couldn't they open up a ketchup factory? And my grandmother replied that that wasn't possible in Turkey, that Turkey wasn't like America and it wasn't easy to open up businesses. And I think as an eight-year-old, that that moment really enlightened me to why my parents made the difficult decision to emigrate to the United States. You got a more realistic understanding of underdevelopment, uh, what doesn't really fix it, from years with the State Department and in war-torn Bosnia. Talk about that and what focused you on entrepreneurship as the answer. 
Sure, because um, I I was always aware of the world and and having this interest in Turkey and and traveling there, I've always wanted to go into foreign policy, particularly into development. I was always fascinated by how do you make a country like Turkey go from developing to developed. And so I studied political science, and then right after graduating, I went off and joined the State Department where I got to work on the issues of development and poverty alleviation that that I had studied. And I had an opportunity in 2002 to actually move to Sarajevo to work for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is an international international body. And it was there that I actually got a a seat to what post-conflict rehabilitation was. And what I realized what it was is that it had to be about the people there, and the people there really wanted jobs. They kept asking me, you know, how can, we, how can you help us create jobs? And it was one particular incident when I traveled to the east of the country when I came across an, an elderly woman who, who lectured me and said, you know, you come here with your Western ideas about human rights and democracy, but we don't need those here now. We need to be able to make money and to rebuild our schools and our roads and our homes because our sons and our fathers are going off to Europe in order to have jobs. Can't you help us create jobs? And it was at that moment that I came to the epiphany that if development was really going to work, it really needed to be about entrepreneurship. Because besides ideology, aid is really foodstuffs and and money to buy foodstuffs. I mean, it's the old story about give a man a fish and he'll have a meal, give him a fishing pole and teach him and he can fish for the rest of his life. I also think, I mean, I think the thing about aid is that it gets caught up in a lot of bureaucracy, which is what I faced while I was working at the OSCE. I think it's a lot about accountability. And so while I think that aid does have very good intentions, and I don't want to dismiss it or the development sector at all. I think that bodies like the World Bank, the IMF, and USAID are necessary, as is necessary the Gates Foundation. I think the problem is that everybody's so concerned that the money that that those bodies are channeling to make sure that they're going into worthwhile endeavors, everybody gets caught up in accountability rather than effectiveness. And so I think when you're, when you're thinking about development, it really needs to be about what impact are you having on the ground, and sometimes that has to be about trial and error, which is what entrepreneurship is. What's your definition of an entrepreneur as opposed to a businessman or businesswoman, despite how successful their shop or store or services may be? That's an excellent question. And we hear a lot about entrepreneurship these days, and a lot of people call themselves entrepreneurs. And certainly somebody who is taking a risk to open up a a storefront um, should see themselves as an entrepreneur. But in my book, what I really call an entrepreneur is somebody who is overcoming obstacles and really paving the way for progress. And what I mean by that is they're really changing and breaking down the status quo. They're getting rid of old business models. They're creating new business paradigms and ways to approach business. So when you look at what happened in Silicon Valley in the 1960s, the people that created the first microchip did it out in Silicon Valley where far away from the, the East Coast corporate America. And they didn't replicate East Coast corporate America with the hierarchy and the large office buildings. They got rid of all of that. They had a very flattened structure. They, they encouraged collaboration. 
and they encourage experimentation. And that is really what set Silicon Valley forward, and it really got everybody in the region excited, and it is really responsible for the great innovations that we've seen come out of Silicon Valley. And now we're seeing that being replicated around the world, whether in Africa, Asia, Latin America, or the Middle East, where you're seeing men and women who are not just starting storefronts. It's not just a restaurant or a dry cleaner, but they're starting businesses that are actually helping to shift policies and to change business models to create opportunity and, most importantly, to really bring in and attract investments into their countries. And what do you see as the factors right now that are leading to successful entrepreneurship in such disparate locations worldwide, even the appearance you suggest of another Steve Jobs there? I think globalization is really very key here. Let's not forget that entrepreneurs are not a new phenomenon around the world. Entrepreneurs have existed in, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East for millennia. The reason that we haven't seen a Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, or Michael Dell story replicated in those places is because the obstacles in, the, in those places have been just too tremendous. And it's prevented entrepreneurs from not only building enterprises, but more importantly, from scaling them up. And so globalization has erased economic borders, but it's also transferred knowledge. When, when we, in the past two decades, when a lot of technology companies started outsourcing, they not were only were transferring jobs and opportunities overseas, but they were also transferring those skills. And people who, whether it was in Israel, South Korea, Taiwan, or in China, were seeing how, how these companies in Silicon Valley were creating their technologies and their innovations and their softwares. And I think a lot of those people decided, well, since I'm making it here, why don't I give it a try and try to do it in my own home country? Part of major innovation, and one that often provokes opposition, you note, is creative destruction. Explain that. Creative destruction is a term by the economist Joseph Schumpeter, and it's really it goes to this idea that you're destroying the old ways and paradigms. You're destroying the status quo. And you're paving the way not only for new, new business approaches, but you're creating channels of new socioeconomic wealth. And so the importance of creative destruction is it's what brings us innovation, but it's also what brings us progress. And so in the United States, we've been fortunate enough to continually see creative destruction, individuals who are really willing to go against the grain, challenge the status quo, and change the way business is done, whether in any industry, whether it's in engineering or in finance or in education, and bring us new products and services. And it's allowed social mobility, which has been the key to progress. Let's look at the particular ways that the entrepreneurs you profile are overcoming obstacles to their particular goals, starting with uh, Chelebi in Turkey. Sure. Bülent Chelebi is the founder of a company called Airties. When Bülent um, decided to launch Airties in 2004 in Turkey, um, he launched it very much as a company focused on creating Wi-Fi routers. Bülent had spent most of his career in Silicon Valley. He had earned an engineering degree at the University of Berkeley in California, and then he had worked on all sorts of technologies and, and techno at, at technology companies in, in Silicon Valley. 
He took this idea of creating a new kind of Wi-Fi router that runs on a mesh technology. And unlike the Wi-Fi routers that we're normally accustomed to here in the United States, mesh runs, it can run. It basically runs on the ability of anything that is, is connected and has, has a mobile connection. So it's not linked to a single broadband connection. So you can make your phone um, mesh enabled. Another Wi-Fi router can enable your Wi-Fi router. So it's one of these things where it doesn't depend on a single dedicated line. And so she decided to launch this in, in Turkey, um, but also thinking that he could take this mesh technology and apply it to a number of other things, as you had mentioned, the Internet of Things. He thought, you know, he could create this, he could put mesh technology in washing machines, in cars, in television sets, and he eventually started to create set-top boxes. Turkey has a lot of talented engineers, which is one of the reasons that that moved from Silicon Valley to Istanbul. He thought, I could hire a lot of really talented individuals for really a quarter of the, uh, for half the price that you would get in Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley had become one of the most expensive places to live in 2003 and 2004. But what he found in Turkey is that while he, he hired very talented engineers, that they had lacked this culture of, of just initiative. And they didn't have the skill sets where they could go out and they could be creative. They were used to a very top-down structure, which is very much what the professional class in, in Turkey has been, been like, where they just execute on what's, what they're being told. And so he hired these engineers, but they weren't used to having a boss who encouraged them to think big and to share their ideas and to come up with new ways of doing things. And so it took him a long time to get over this obstacle of, you know, a lack of talent. And he did that by really focusing in on culture, by really nurturing and fostering the people that he hired to really come out of their shell and to take a risk and to take the initiative to start experimenting. Your case study in uh, Lagos, Nigeria, the goal, the particular problem, the path forward. In Lagos, I spent time with Tayo Visu, who runs a mobile payment company called Paga. And like, um, I think a lot of people are familiar with M-Pesa in Kenya, which was founded by Safaricom, a Vodafone holding, Paga is, is peer-to-peer mobile payments. One of the biggest problems in Nigeria, despite it being the largest economy on the African continent, is that 80% of the population doesn't have access to banks. So most people hold on to their money. Um, they carry it around in cash. They literally, I mean, without exaggeration, hide it underneath their mattress. And that, I mean, you, as you can imagine, is very problematic. Um, there's high incidence of, of crime in, in Lagos. Um, but more than that, there's also, it's also a problem where this money never accumulates as an asset. Money is not saved. It's not used to develop any type of credit history. Um, and so people are just trying, it's a transactional, it's a transactional resource that doesn't allow a certain class of people to actually move out of the situation that they're in. By creating Paga, which uses either a mobile phone or, or a PC computer to allow individuals to 
actually move money from one place to another, from one person to another. It's actually started to develop a system where people are starting to save money, but people are starting to develop a credit history, which is very important in a place like Nigeria that it is on track to become one of the, the most um, economically powerful countries over the next 10 years. Your man in Pakistan seems focused on image as much as real problem solving. Yes, Monis Rahman I met in 2010. I had gone to Pakistan um, as part of a mission to assess the country's entrepreneurial landscape. And when I was first asked to join this mission, it, 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 it just struck me, you know, could there be, you know, these high-growth entrepreneurs in Pakistan? Because the Pakistan that I kept hearing about was a Pakistan where bombs went off, where there was a lot of political corruption, where there was a lot of political turmoil. Um, and so when I got there, I was very surprised to meet individuals like Monis Rahman, who is a, an engineer. He had spent time in Silicon Valley and worked at Intel and decided in, in um, 2003 to move back to Pakistan to launch an Internet company. His first company was a dating website which did so spectacularly well that he actually needed to hire more engineers to staff up that operation, which then spawned into his second Internet company, which is Rosie PK, a job search engine. But in doing both, I think Monis really came to the realization that, that insecurity isn't actually one of Pakistan's challenges. It's a symptom. The bigger challenge in Pakistan and the one that he was addressing is places and platforms for people to come together to exchange ideas and to collaborate. There's a huge lack of collaborative space in Pakistan. Geographically, the country is divided into four different regions. That is um, the demography of all the mountains and the rugged terrain makes it very difficult to get around. And I think on a cultural level, because most the majority of the people in the country are Muslim, things are very much degree and run gender, which is which causes a dynamic where people are not free to actually interact and share ideas and, and best practices. Through the internet platforms, Monis believes that you know he's he's allowing people to come together to collaborate, to meet with one another, and just to just to exchange ideas and and to do something that is really the fundamental basis of any entrepreneurial idea or any innovation. Across the border, uh, how is a for-profit ambulance service in Mumbai, India, fighting corruption there? Shopping Mother's mother, um, uh, about a decade ago, um, one evening, started choking on something um, quite severely. And Shafi and his family were quite panicked, and they picked up the phone to call an ambulance. Um, and unfortunately, it didn't work. An ambulance never came. Shafi eventually had to put his mother into his own car and rush her to the hospital. Thankfully, she's fine. But it really scared Shafi, who is not – he doesn't have a background in healthcare at all. He's a white-collar professional who was working in the, in the private sector. Um, but he, he had decided he looked at where India was. 
And, you know, in early 2000, India had really risen. Its economy had come very far. It was being talked about in the same sentences as China, as being economically powerful and relevant in the world. And he thought, you know, how can our country that is being talked about among China and the United States and all these developed countries not have a working ambulance service? So he set about to set up a for-profit ambulance service. But what happened to him when he tried to actually register for um, a toll-free number that would allow people to call for this ambulance service is what really made him understood what held, what held India back. And he was at the office where you register for these toll-free numbers when one of the bureaucrats asked, asked him for a $4,000 bribe. He refused to pay it. As a result, the bureaucrat gave him a number that he thought would make it difficult for Shafi to actually make this ambulance company get off the ground. That number is called 1298. But instead, Shafi decided to take that number and tell his story. And it resonated with a lot of people in India. I think one of the problems that Shafi came across is the reason that they, didn't, though they don't have proper public services in India is not because they're not readily, readily available and the government can't deliver on them. It's because there's a huge lack of trust. People, ordinary people, don't trust the government to actually deliver proper services um, precisely because of such corruption. And he thought if we, can, if we can stamp out the corruption and we can rebuild trust in Indian society, then we can actually move forward and do bigger and better things and fulfill our potential. And so while he continues to um, operate this ambulance company and it's quite successful and it's being, it's being scaled out into Singapore and to Dubai, the real core tenet of what it propelled him forward, and I, and I underline as his success, is his his real focus on fighting corruption in India. Um, tell us about the energy efficiency entrepreneur in Mexico and his challenges. Enrique Gomez Junco started Optima Energia um, about two decades ago. And he had identified an opportunity where Mexico has a lot of sunlight, and he thought he would um, take, take that advantage that Mexico has, and he would build solar panels. Um, it was also one of the industries, solar panels was also one of the industries that, that the Mexican monopolists, people like Carlos Slim, didn't have a holdover. Energy had been until recently in the hands of the government that along with oil. And under government control, it really was stagnant. The government would charge very high prices to Mexicans for their electricity and not really deliver any particularly very good services. And so people were paying a lot of money, particularly businesses in Mexico. And Enrique thought he would address this by providing them alternative energy solutions that would cut down on their energy costs. The solar panel business struggles a little bit, and to complement that, he decided to really look at energy efficiency, particularly at hotels. And he worked with a number of different hotels on how they could actually reduce their energy costs, how they could actually recycle their water, how they could use um, different, um, different methods of switching lights, saving money on lights and switching them on and off when people weren't using them. Energy efficient ways to use air conditioning, and, and to use um, refrigeration. And that, that part of the business really took off. And he started to move forward with this idea. And then when I mentioned, I mentioned globalization earlier, what really put the wind in the field was the phenomenon of globalization. 
as economic borders started to be erased, the monopolists in Mexico were no longer the only game in town. Now you had, with people coming in from all over the world, not only from the United States, but from Canada, from China, from Brazil, from all parts of the world, I think Mexico's monopolists and the big businesses who had always dominated and really held, held Mexico's economy back realized that in order to hold on to the status that they have, in order to really continue to be the big guys that they wanted to be, they had to compete along with everyone else. They could no longer just sit as fat cats. They actually had to start innovating, and they, had, they, started, they needed to start thinking like entrepreneurs. So a lot of, a lot of people like Enrique, a lot of um, entrepreneur, Mexican entrepreneurs like Enrique, who had, who had honed in on businesses that the monopolists did not, really, really were propelled forward by globalization because the monopolists saw that if they collaborated with these, with these up-and-coming entrepreneurs, they could all then really move forward, and they really all embraced this, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. You mentioned China as coming into Mexico. The resistance to technology change in China has much to do with its social and political implications. Tell us about your case there. Sure. In China, I, I, I profile Lei Jun, who is the founder of a, a smartphone company called Xiaomi. Lei Jun is actually um, called the Steve Jobs of China, and Xiaomi is often compared to Apple. The difference between Xiaomi and Apple, though, is that Lei Jun offers his phones at cost. They're high-quality phones, but he doesn't charge $800 for people to buy them. How he generates money is a little bit more like the Jeff Bezos Amazon model, where he sells the phones at cost, but then he makes the money on the applications that are available on, on the phone. The other thing that Lejeune has done that's actually very interesting is that all of his software and his technology is on open source, which has really encouraged Chinese techies and engineers to get on to the Xiaomi platform to introduce new ideas, to play around with the applications, and to be really part of the company's success. And it's really succeeded. Xiaomi and Lejeune are one of the top entrepreneurs and companies in China. It's right now one of the most valuable companies around the world. Um, and what he's also doing, what I saw, what I thought was very interesting, is he's also challenging this notion of the status quo within the Chinese government. You pointed out that there's a lot of political control in China. And what's interesting is though the Chinese government has very been very pro-entrepreneurship and supports entrepreneurs and all of this economic growth, it's very much against people experimenting with their ideas and having free thought and, and just going out there and taking a risk. It really wants entrepreneurs to, to come from the top down. I think Lei Jun's approach is very much about organic entrepreneurship and really at the root of where innovation really lies. It lies at the edges. It doesn't, it's not something that you can actually plan or dictate. It's something that people have to do independently on their own through trial and error and risk. And as China moves forward, I think it's going to be a real test to see companies like Xiaomi and then also companies like we've heard about like Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu in China to really see if they can compete globally because they're doing it well in China now, which is the most populous country in the world. 
So it's got a huge billion, 1.3 billion um, market, um, and that's great for, for a company. But if they really want to be globally competitive, they're really going to have to go out there and try to be innovative. And I think the Chinese Communist Party is going to have to come to grips with whether they want to continue this type of economic growth or they want to hold on to power. Because if they, they want continued economic growth, then they're going to have to be a little bit more flexible in their approach to politics. Finally, in Moscow, you see a chemical company entrepreneur fighting the weak rule of law. Tell us about that. I came across Yana Yakovlova as I was researching um, around the world. Um, I think Russia is a country that we often overlook when we talk about entrepreneurship. We often focus on Vladimir Putin. Um, And what I found in, in going into Russia is that there are a lot of very impressive engineers and entrepreneurs in Russia. I, I, and I do argue in the book that I think Moscow has among the best talented entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley. The ideas I saw being presented in Moscow really, it just far exceeded the, the ideas that I had seen in any other country that I, that I had gone into. And Yanni Yakovlova's story is really one about the importance of the rule of law and good governance. She was a young 20-something out of college in the early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, And the free market presented an opportunity for her to actually set up a business with a colleague of hers. It was a chemical trading company. Her company, to me, wasn't that interesting. I think it was how Yana reacted to what happened to her over the years that I I wanted to write about her because I think her story really illustrates the importance of entrepreneurs being engaged in in public discourse and being conscious of what what the government is doing. Um, about a decade into into running her company Sofex, uh, a number of drug enforcement officials came to Yana and asked if if they could if Yana would supply them with uh, with a, a drug that's used to synthesize heroin. Um, Yana refused. They began to harass her, and in in June one year, they actually arrested Yana and they threw her in jail. They didn't read her any rights. Um, they kept her in jail for several months. Um, she was allocated a court date, and when she was appointed a lawyer, she said that she wanted to fight the charges. They had lobbed all sorts of fake charges against her about illegal possession of drugs. She was laundering money. Um, and she said, I am not guilty of any of these things. She had to go through four lawyers before she could actually find one that would actually agree to stand up to the judge and fight the charges that were presented against her. Um, as she did this, there was a public campaign that really rose up in Moscow, but also further, that really drew awareness to the plight of a lot of business people in Russia who are taken down by a lot of people in, in the government, and it's, it's quite a corrupt system um, that really, really comes from the top. And she fought the charges, and when she got out and the charges were dropped, she started um, a movement called Business Solidarity, which since then has been working to reform laws for entrepreneurs and businesses, and she succeeded in doing that. She's fought for entrepreneurs' rights. She she works with entrepreneurs who have been unjustly jailed and, and helps them with lawyers and court appearances and has really become a leading figure within Russian private circles about the importance of the rights that entrepreneurs need to have.
Silicon Valley, USA, is clearly an inspiration, if not an actual training ground for some far-off entrepreneurs. And you found a lot of Silicon something names for the places uh, they cluster. Give us some examples. Sure. I think the the trend has been to call, if, if wherever you are in the world, we, you know, in East Africa, there's Silicon Savannah. In the Middle East, there's Silicon Wadi. Um, and what I found is that, you know, in going in and out of Silicon Valley, I, I think that it's a shame to actually label these places Silicon anything. I don't think anywhere else can be the next Silicon Valley. I think but that doesn't mean that other places aren't as successful or are as innovative. I think the inspiration that Silicon Valley has provided is a great guiding light. It's certainly the beacon, and it has lit the way for this global phenomenon in startups and entrepreneurship. But I think what the entrepreneurs in each country are doing is something that entrepreneurs should be doing anywhere, and that is solving problems for people not only in their communities but the world over and really thinking about innovation not as a billion-dollar valuation and as a next, next sexy tech gadget, but as something that's going to add value, create opportunity, and really remake the socioeconomic landscape. Going back to that concept of creative destruction, it's really destroying the status quo and really enabling other people to really feel like they can take an idea and they can, and they can try it out. And that's really universal. And so I end the book by saying how, you know, somewhere there's someone building the next Apple, the next Facebook, and the next Google, you know, the next great innovator, the next few jobs is is not likely to come from Silicon Valley, but will come from either Mexico, China, Turkey, Nigeria, or Pakistan. Um, it just just because it's not just that they're replicating Silicon Valley, but they're taking the, the core principles of what startups and entrepreneurship is about and applying it, and it's about people and progress. Elmira Bay-Rosley, thank you. Thank you, David. Elmira Bay-Rosley is a World Policy Institute senior fellow. Her new book is From the Other Side of the World, Extraordinary Entrepreneurs, Unlikely Places, from Public Affairs Publishers. Featured in the Food Fight Fall 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on smaller, smarter, and more productive approaches to agriculture, about the avoidable loss and waste of food, and about cuisine, controversy, and nationalism. Plus, tune in to next week's podcast when we survey answers from eight nations on five continents to the new issue's big question, how will people in your region meet their food needs in the future? World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.